This is a Federal News Network podcast. Agencies faced more than 30,000 cyber incidents in fiscal 2020, and that's an 8% increase over the year before. Email phishing and website authentication problems continue to be among the biggest attack vectors hackers are using to get to agencies and their networks and data. But despite this escalation, the annual Federal Information Security Management Act FISMA report card to Congress highlights some real progress. Chris Darusha is the Federal Chief Information Security Officer. He tells Executive Editor Jason Miller why the report, along with that recent executive order, lays out the cybersecurity path forward. One big stat that jumped out to us was the 26 percent increase in the number of cloud services um, reported by agencies in, in FY 2019. And that, I'm sure continued throughout the response of the pandemic. I think it it shows just how rapid this acceleration of of cloud adoption efforts is and and the need for us to ensure that we're having secure configurations for those environments, right? And and, and that is one of the areas of focus that that you see in the recent executive order 14028, where we've got various uh, initiatives and tasks on developing secure cloud strategy and reference architecture and the like. So you know, to me, to me, that was really kind of the biggest takeaway. Interesting that the number of attacks against agencies, you know, kind of saw or number of, of attempted attacks was up. The number of successful ones, uh, there's some more major ones that popped up as well. Do, do you look at that and say agencies are facing a different type of cyber attack today than they were a year, two, three years ago? Or is it just part of the ebb and flow and last year was just – because of the pandemic and other reasons, maybe we saw an increase that, that expected and, and maybe almost natural. We saw an 8% increase in the number of incidents, right? And that's that's significant. And I believe that in the prior two-year reports, you know, it actually decreased. And I, I think we got to be somewhat cautious around reading too much into the overall numbers. It, it also gets into, are we getting better at detecting, et cetera, and, you know, looking at it from both angles. But but look, I mean, I, I definitely feel that the, and, and we've observed over the past few months, that the scope and severity and scale of some of these attacks is quite dramatically up. And, and that is really driving this sense of urgency and focus that we have to, to address that. You know, it, when you look at the overall number of incidents in the FISMA report, though, it is also important to point out that if you look at something like 97%, are really in that low category of either they hadn't been substantiated or considered to be inconsequential events, maybe non-events, or just in a low level of severity. And there's really more around that 3% range of incidents that really need to be investigated and, and looked into and may have had some level of impact in that scale from a major all the way up to a major incident or, or something far less severe. So, yeah, you know, it is important when you look at a number like 31,000, to disaggregate that because, you know, there, there are big differences. When you look at the number of incidents, too, I think one of the things that is important to look at is where agencies are still struggling to deal with the, the incidents, right? And spear phishing, email attacks continue to be one of the, the biggest areas that the attacks are successful. Also, one of the big areas that, that I saw this year was around web authentication, and I think that's another part that the people are starting to pay more attention to. Are there specific steps you all are taking to really – address those threat surface areas? I mean, I know obviously DMARC was a big one, but are there other things that are happening that you're saying, okay, we really need to turn up the the levels there? For sure. If you look in the cyber executive order that was recently released, I mean, you can see 
a number of actions across the board. And it's really providing the roadmap that we, we've got to enhance how agencies are managing risk from all of these attack vectors. For sure, phishing is still uh, where we see a lot of success. You, you mentioned web, web off. I mean, there, there are some key areas that we're focused on, like laser beam. But we're also taking a higher order picture and looking at, you know, what, what do we need to do from ensuring that agencies have awareness on cyber incidents that are affecting their mission by uh, ensuring we're changing contract requirements, making sure that SIS is developing options to implement endpoint detection, response tools for agencies to discover threats, and ensuring that we're, we're focused on um, developing secure software and that agencies are procuring secure software. And, and then on the incident response and recovery end, developing playbooks, incident response playbooks, and, and best practices, and, and standing up for the first time an incident review board so we can take kind of the, the best lessons learned from these events and ensure them back to, to everyone. You know, and this is all about managing the holistic risk picture because we also learned in, in recent months that there are some sophisticated methods being employed here that may or may not be through the most common attack vectors, but there are things that we need to have layered defenses back and start developing um, zero trust architecture in, in a faster way across federal government to ensure that we're, you know, having the full modern security stack in place and really not trusting uh, on the edge and just ensuring that we are uh, continuing to assess the devices and, and the humans accessing data so, so that we are really protecting from the, the TTPs that we're starting to see. Chris, you mentioned risk a couple of times. Let's go down that path because one of the things that highlighted to me that I really is, is how agencies are doing a much better job of managing risk. And, and I think that is shown in the report when we look at the NISC cybersecurity framework function and the rating levels, highest ever across the board in, in the mall. And then when you look at some of the IG reports that talk about how they're managing risk, you see a better efforts, you see better scores, if you will. What does this tell you about how agencies are handling cyber these days, just from the, the way they're managing risk? I think, fortunately, it's starting to pervade out of IT cones and really get into the business side and mission side of agencies in understanding that cybersecurity is really about managing risk in the digital age. And that's a journey we're on. That's an educational process that we're on with agency executives, which is why it's so crucial for OMB to have cybersecurity baked into the president's management agenda, cross-agency priority goals, and other mechanisms we have to you know, drive and, and measure risk management of, across federal agencies. So I think that that's one key thing. And the other one is, look, CISOs and their teams and, and the IT operations teams, uh, application development teams, they are working hard to address cybersecurity risk. And we spend a lot of time on the CISO council there's a number of subcommittees in that group, and it's a real partnership to work together and address these risks that, that they are seeing and lifting up to the broader group so that we're sharing best practices across and providing help because, you know, rarely does one agency have a problem that another hasn't seen. And we're ensuring that those best practices and, and just lessons learned are being shared and, and that we're pulling them up and making sure that they're not just shared point to point but also formalizing it within the body to get that goodness out to all of the agencies. You bring up this idea of ensuring that non-IT folks, the CIO, the CISO, and their staffs understand 
the cyber risk that that's involved. Is there a specific approach you or, or your office is taking to meet with secretaries, deputy secretaries, assistant secretaries for management, you know, CFOs, whomever that necessarily aren't the IT people to to help ensure that they understand why managing cyber risk is more important than ever. I mean, you can say solar winds, but but until it's something that's more personal to them, they may not get it. Absolutely, and and that's right. It is about storytelling, and it's about explaining the risks in business terms. And that is absolutely in our our roadmap and plans. Deputy secretaries are starting to onboard across federal government, which is very exciting. And we are starting our engagements with them at senior levels within OMB. And it's absolutely in our roadmap here to to really start having these business risk management conversations and frame cybersecurity as really digital risk management problems. Chris Tarusha, the Federal Chief Information Security Officer, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. There is more to the interview. Check out Ask the CIO at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina 
quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. 
And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.